You're listening to a sermon delivered at First Family Church in Ankeny, Iowa, from the series, Doctrine That Goes the Distance. For more information and sermons, visit our website at firstfamily.church. Today we talk about demonology, this common enemy that church planters here like Steve and Nick, Nick Reed, not Nick Aiken, or church planters in Central Asia, or church planters in Southeast Asia, workers in Haiti, those who are evangelizing in Utah, Australia, our partners there will be here in a few weeks, Russ and Kathy. Regardless of where the work is happening, there's a common enemy. It's Satan and his regime, his demons. That's who we're actually fighting. Yes, I am saying there is an invisible source behind all the visible sights of evil you see. Look what the scriptures here say to us. Here's how Paul words it. He says, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And now he's going to list for us what I believe are those actual schemes or structures or manipulations, notice the words plural there, and he's going to mention, I think, four schemes or arrangements for ways in which the devil works. He says we are actually wrestling not against flesh and blood. Underline that. So your enemy is not, watch this, it's not an elected official. Your enemy is not the lighthouse member who disagrees with you. Your enemy is not city council member or a state law. That's not who you and that's not who I wrestle against. But instead we wrestle against the rulers, there's one of his schemes, against the authorities, another one of his schemes against cosmic powers over this present darkness, a third of his schemes, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, fourth of his schemes. These are the schemes that we wrestle against. This is why I had to start with a practical illustration, because when you read that, the tendency for humans is to mythologize that. To say, well, that's probably invisible, which it is. I don't get it. What does that mean? So we'll just act like... The devil's just some guy with horns and a tail and a pitchfork, and, and we'll just kind of make him part of books that we don't want to really want to grapple with all that's in here. Oh, I think we do. Because the Bible says this is actually who we're grappling with. We're in close hand to hand combat with these things. The word wrestle there is not the word for a long warfare that includes perhaps hundreds of soldiers and and a, and a battle over a distance. This is a, a word used only for like close hand-to-hand combat, used even at times of like a wrestling match. So Paul, inspired by God and writing inspired scripture, says we are not in hand-to-hand close combat with flesh and blood. Instead, we are in close hand-to-hand wrestling, grappling kind of situations with things such as Rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces that are evil. That's who we're wrestling. Now that is not to say that those influences and those powers can't 
have an effect on people's structures and laws? They can. Political systems, laws and structures, rulers, dictators can be influenced and manipulated and maneuvered by these things. But I'm simply saying that those things you see are not your real enemy. These things are. Now, I can't go through all of these verses that end in 20 for lack of time. I simply want to show you something that as he talks about these four things that are the schemes of the devil, notice how he ends in verse 18 and 19. He talks about the armor, and then he just simply says we should pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication and making supplication. You talk about repetitious. Did you hear that? Paul says, pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer. That sounds crazy to me. I want you to pray with all prayer. Well, of course you're praying with all prayer. You're praying. The point is, Paul's being emphatic here to say, when you don the armor of God and you're battling the invisible forces of Satan, make sure that you're draped in prayer. And he says, why? Because, I mean, that's the blanket we wear that enables perseverance But he says, and pray for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Here it is, the the ultimate practical application of spiritual warfare. We fight and stand in the Lord against Satan so that not only are we victorious, but those who go out from us proclaiming the gospel will speak with boldness. People like Nick and Jenna, Mike and Sue, Mary Ann, our mission teams, Steve and Nick, who are planting locally, and others the Lord will send our way in the future. This is why this church must stand strong in the Lord and the power of his might against Satan and his demons, not just for our benefit, but for those who go out from us and are sent so that they would speak boldly. We stand and wrestle so that they can go and speak. So spiritual warfare is critical. Understanding demonology and How Satan works is critical, not just to our operations here, but to what goes on outside of here as well. So I want to dive in this morning and understand as much as we can in the time allotted about demonology. Here we see that really Satan's schemes or the devil's schemes, I think, are in four areas. I believe here they are hierarchical. I believe they start from the lowest to the highest. That's not a commonly agreed upon type of understanding. Some would say that these are four words that simply speak of the devil's work in general. They could be right. I don't know. I tend to see them as going from the lowest to the highest. There are rulers. Over those rulers, there are authorities. Over those authorities, there are cosmic powers over this present darkness. And then over that, there are spiritual forces in the heavenly places. They're evil. This probably references something like we see in Job when Satan came and appeared before God and he began to accuse Job. That happened in the heavenly places. He is the leader of the demons. He's the spiritual force behind that. He's the evil spiritual force behind it. So I think this last phrase probably refers to the highest ranking, if not Satan himself, who is accusing believers before God. And then he, with his evil power, kind of passes down this, these, these orders and delegates uh, attacks and, and pressure and, and evil things to happen through his demonic realm 
what I would say would be rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over the present darkness. Now, when you read that, you think, Todd, that sounds like something's happening around us, like in the atmosphere. It is. Ephesians 2.2 2 says that those who are not saved, which at one point all of us were in that boat, we were children of disobedience, and we were walking under the power of the prince of the power of the air. Yeah, I don't want to parse that too much except to say this. Something invisibly evil is sourcing what is visibly evil. Did you catch that? And the sooner you can just embrace that fact and say, wow, so these four things, that's what's behind what's happening that's evil. Exactly. And these four things are, as you're seeing on the screen behind me, they're hierarchical, I believe. They're invisible. They're global. They're powerful. And they're personal. This perhaps may be one of the best uh, brief descriptions of Satan's regime in the New Testament. How he operates. He is a spiritual evil force in a heavenly place. But he works through rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers in the present darkness to try to frustrate the purposes of God. And how does he do that? Because he knows he, and I'll say more later about this, I'm getting ahead of myself. How does he do that? He knows he can't frustrate God. So what does he do? He frustrates God's people. Now, the devil's regime, as you see here, these four things are part of even three other things that bother God's people. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So three categories are always tripping us up. Could somebody say amen to that? The devil for sure, his rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over present darkness and spiritual forces in heavenly places. Man, they give us fits. But also the world, which is the world system, which I think no doubt he is behind. But just the system he set up, so of selfishness, of meanness, you know, that whole uh, culture of worldliness, anti-godness, that's, that's just a constant pressure in the battle. And then the flesh, the things we see and hear and that, that appeal to our sinful nature. So, so we're, we're battling Satan, no doubt. But he has put into place things that bother us that aren't even necessarily, um, he may not even be present at the moment. The world and the flesh. So this is what's happening in demonology and in Satanology. Understanding this, we're looking at three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And under the idea of the devil, here's the four ways in which he works. I think it's important that you understand this because this is our experience. And I want to make sure you understand this is, I mean, I think right now, even I'm sensing in your faces and in your posture. Yeah, I mean, like, that's where I'm at. I, I sense the pressure of the flesh. I sense the pressure of the world, the philosophy just kind of, you know, weighing on me to think like the culture. And yes, I've seen the devil attack. I've seen evil things happen. Like, Todd, I, that's my experience. But I don't know where it comes from, how it happened, what's going on. I agree, Todd. That's what it feels like. That's what it looks like. I sense that happening. Where did it start? How did it get here? Why is that all that way? That's a good question. So let's put some now theology behind our experience. We see why we should do it like Nick and Jenna. We know, hey man, this is the practical end. 
yes, that's our experience, but how did this ever even begin? Let's think for a bit about demonology and where it started. When did Satan fall? Now buckle your seatbelts, because we're going to venture into some areas that are, that are difficult to explain and possibly grasp. You will have lots of questions. Text them in. I may not get to them today, but I will answer them this week, either personally or on my blog, okay? I'll answer the best I can. Here's what we think about Satan's fall. Between Genesis 1, 31, I'll show you this kind of simple chart that I made up. Not made up, I developed or drew. I didn't make this up. That's not the good word to use it. Here's a simple chart I kind of uh, developed, help you kind of get this visually. Genesis 1, 31, God saw everything that was good. That's Genesis 1, 31. In Genesis 3, 1, the serpent shows up to tempt Eve. That's not good. So what happened between Genesis 1.31, when everything was good, and Genesis 3.1, when there's a serpent in the garden, and he's tempting God's creature? Like, what's happening with that? That's a good question, right? Which one we should ask. The New Testament seems to give us indication what happened. It's Jude chapter 1, verse 6, and 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You can turn there if you like. I'll be brief on these. You might want to take a, a snapshot of the slide, look at them later. But here's what we believe happened between Genesis 1.31 and Genesis 3.1. It's not listed in Genesis. I admit that. But as you piece together the Bible and what we refer to in week one as systematic theology, here's what we believe and learn. That at some point, the angels who God created, there was a certain amount of angels who rebelled against God. Their rebellion was led by Lucifer, what we consider, I believe, to be like the head of, uh, one of the head worship leader angels. He was a beautiful creation. You'll see in Ezekiel in a minute that it says he was created. So angels are created beings. At some point, between 131 and 3.1, and we don't know how this happened. There's different hypotheses about it. Those are mere opinions. But at some point, the angels, uh, Lucifer rebelled, and with him about a third of the angels said, we're going to try to, Stage a coup against God. Here's how Jude describes it. He says, I want to remind you, verse 5, that although you once fully knew it, uh, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's speaking here of Jesus' power to judge. Look at verse 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So at some point, there's a, a, a group of angels who left their position of authority, rebelled against God. Obviously, that wasn't going to work. And Jesus has been now in charge, uh, entrusted with their judgment. He's keeping them in chains, at least a portion of them. 2 Peter 2.4 says something very similar. Look at 2 Peter 2.4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So here's the best way to understand this. Satan and a group of angels rebelled against God somewhere between 131 and 3.1. God obviously, since he was the creator, they're the created, he cast them out of heaven. This is possibly described in two Old Testament passages, and I'll list them underneath here now. It's Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, 
and Ezekiel 28, 11 through 16. Just flip there briefly, would you? I'll read a few phrases from these passages. Now, if you're a student, and I know you are, you'll notice that these Old Testament passages are written actually to kings. One to a king of Babylon, one to the king of Tyre. So you're going to ask this, Todd, these seem to be historical passages to actual kings, and yet you're saying that they refer to Lucifer sometime before uh, 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 3.1. Like, can you put that together? It's a very good question. Most commentators and scholars would agree that in these um, judgments upon human kings, there seems to be a moment in which God inspires the Old Testament prophet to kind of speak of something earlier in language that would not really apply to an earthly king. Much like we have sometimes within the New Testament and the Old Testament language that speaks of something in the future. So the prophet's writing and he sees the initial mountain, but he looks in the horizon and he sees another further mountain. So he's writing and God's using it to prophesy of something still to come, and yet it kind of relates to something near. Dual prophecy, so to speak. I think this is one of those moments in these two passages when he's writing and he's describing a judgment on a king but it's being used by God to describe exactly how he judged Lucifer. Notice what he says in Isaiah 14. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? The word here is Lucifer. So suddenly here's this name inserted into a a prophecy, an oracle towards an earthly king, but it's now suddenly a, a different name. It seems to be language in both passages that's kind of far superior than whatever be said about an earthly person. So all that kind of goes into this interpretation into this understanding of, oh, this is really describing in somewhat of a past prophetic way the fall of Satan. How are you fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn? You're cut down to the ground. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I'll set my throne on high. I'll sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you were brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. And I would agree with hundreds of years of scholarly work that this is language and, and words that describe something far greater and bigger than just that present day king. I think it is a past description of when Satan was cast out of heaven. I think Luke 18.10 bears witness to this. When Jesus said he witnessed uh, Satan being cast down from heaven. I think Isaiah 14 describes that. Ezekiel 28 does as well. Look about verse... Uh, Again, you can read 11 through 16 for the full context. But he says in 12 how Lucifer was the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. He mentions here about how beautiful he was. He was an anointed guardian cherub in verse 14. He was in the holy mountain of God. He was blameless from the day he was created, verse 15 says. And yet... In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and you sinned. And so I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, verse 16 says. Verse 17 says how he was proud. So again, we see in these two Old Testament passages what probably happened, what I think and believe happened, between Genesis 131 and 3.1. There was a rebellion among the angels led by the chief worship leader angel, Lucifer. And they rebelled against God, described in Ezekiel and Isaiah. The result was that at least a portion of them have been chained now in in darkness. They have been already judged, and they're awaiting their final judgment on that day. This is where Satan's regime has its roots. 
Now, here's why I mention that to you. The fact that he rebelled against God and God cast him out, and at least a portion of those angels that were with him, he's reserved in judgment until the final judgment, says to me already clearly, Satan can rebel he wants. He's not in charge. Amen? So when he comes to you, in all of his schemes, his powers, authorities, rulers of darkness, and cosmic powers in the, in the atmosphere here, when he comes to you as the prince of the power of the air, he's coming to you as a defeated, cast-out foe to try to make your life evil, sinful, and miserable because he really is angry at God. But if the God who cast him out and who has chained up a portion of those demons for later judgment, if he can handle those uh, rebellious creatures, he can take care of you when they bother you. So this is stark and stunning information. This is theology, it's beliefs, it's doctrine. Like, we believe this. It can cause you to like, man, I'm... This isn't the tail, the pitchfork, the horns thing. It's not even mentioned in Scripture. Tail and pitchfork, not even in there. This is a, an invisible, powerful, personal, evil, wicked man, uh, a created one, who's trying to frustrate God's purposes by, by frustrating God's people. Yeah, that's who we're dealing with. And this is where he has his roots. Now, some further class work with you here. He was only called Lucifer prior to his fall. But he's been given other names through Scripture. Names that indicate how he works. Lucifer was uh, this idea of a beautiful worship leader. Uh, That was his name there in Isaiah. But now he's been called things such as Satan, which means adversary. I mean, he's been called devil, which means accuser. All of these names... Talk about what he does and what he's up to. He's God's adversary. He's against God. He's against God's people. He is the accuser of God's people. Read Job. You'll find that he's consistently bringing accusation against uh, God's people in front of God. In fact, let me just kind of startle you for a moment. That's probably happening right now. Before the throne of God, Satan... Or somewhere in those spiritual forces and places, they're bringing up all of your past and hoping that maybe a part of it's not covered by the blood. But you've got a great high priest. You've got an attorney. You've got the best defense lawyer in the universe. <laughs> and every time Satan accuses you, yeah, I saw what Ryan did last week. Do you see that? Do you, you forgive that? Do you cover that? Is there enough blood for that? Is your body sacrificed for that? Does that count? I saw what Eric did and Brad did and Julie. I saw what that pastor did. I saw what those elders did. I saw what those pastor's kids did. I saw what Amy... Hey, God, here's all the ways. These people are messed up. And Jesus stands in and said, yeah, but I've got them covered. He is the accuser of God's people. He's the tempter of God's people, which means he deceives. Which means you really don't know how he's going to operate and work, do you? Paul says that Satan comes to us as an angel of light. So I can understand that temptation often looks good in the moment. Are you with me? 
there really aren't red flashing lights and yellow caution signs. Satan doesn't give away the game like that. He comes to you, as the writer of Hebrews says, thinking that you'll have pleasures. But it doesn't tell you that they're only pleasures for a season. He's also called the wicked one. This refers to the source of evil. In other words, he's the, he's the root. Now, these four names alone would give us insight into what he does, how he works, and it would cause us to, to be like, wow, I want to mess with that, with that created being. But there's 15 at least other names in Scripture. I found them in my mom's doctrines book from her days in college in the 50s. I posted this last night. I was just kind of an heirloom. It's a real, real priceless treasure I found in my library. So I kind of thumbed through it recently. And she has like a, a lot of notes she made. I checked out the Satanology, the demonology section. In addition to the four names that I've mentioned to you, here's some that she's written down, all with a scripture verse by them. So mom, you're watching probably later. Thank you. Beelzebub, Belial, prince of this world, god of this age, prince of the power of the air, that old serpent, a dragon, the evil one, angel of light, father of lies, murderer, a roaring lion, a ruler of darkness, an angel of the bottomless pit, a destroyer, and our adversary. He is all those things. He does all those things. You can see why, just months into our church plant, Um, on that evening at home, it was probably around 12 or 12.30 in the night, and I, be, I just began to feel a strong, I'll use the phrase oppression or temptation, but we were just months into the church plant, Julie and I, we were sleeping, but I was awakened, and I, I just remember more than any other moment in these 14 or so years, I remember that night and just feeling an incredible weight that I can't hardly describe except by these names listed here. I was tempted to believe things that weren't true. My mind was going through things that, that were true, that, like, man, about my past, things that weren't true in what-if situations, things about other people, things that could happen to our children. And then, and then it kind of culminated, and I kind of sat up in bed, and I remember just feeling an immense amount of pressure on my chest. And, and I'm not like a fantastical guy in that sense, to be honest with you. I, I think in some ways you would bear this out. I try to be pretty logical and approach things that way, but I remember that night, like, something is, something's going on that's beyond the visible. Like, I didn't have bad pizza. I didn't get some bad seafood. Honestly, I, I was thinking through, okay, what have I done? But it wouldn't go away. I just, I recall, like, wow, and, and the thoughts and the, the temptation to believe the wrong things. And, and so the Lord graciously just, I think just said, hey, this is a moment of temptation. You need to stand strong. I remember getting out of bed and going to the living room and just getting my knees there at the couch. And then, I don't know how long I was there. I remember going to the front door. And there's no verse in Scripture that says go to the front door. So don't think I'm obeying a Bible. That's just maybe something symbolic I did. Like, you know, I remember saying, God, be the only spirit in this house. And it was, um, it was an I'll never forget just battling authorities and rulers and cosmic forces in the present darkness. I don't know if Satan was there. I'm, not, I'm just a peon guy, okay? I'm sure he wasn't there. 
But there was something arranged in the invisible arena by the prince of the power of the air to bring us to a place where we would quit. I'm sure of that. As I went to the front door, I'm just like, God, and it was just still just very, uh, there's a sense of pressure, uh, of weight, you know, of like a battle. And so I just sensed like, I'm going to go to my kids' room and pray for them. So I went to each of their our rooms and just prayed, like, God, whatever is happening in me or with us or around me, or I can't figure this out, but something's not right. Praying in each of their rooms and going back to the living room and just sitting there. I think I fell asleep eventually, which is what all of us do when we're praying sometimes, right? In the middle of the night, you, it sounds spiritual. It says up all night praying, but a lot of us are sleeping too, right? <laughs> So I don't know how long I was there. At some point, I got up and went back to bed. But the next morning, uh, I mean, God was faithful. And he delivered. But in thinking through this message, in thinking through some of these verses, in thinking through the names of our adversary, more than any other night I can recall, every one of those names, man, I feel like it was a fiery dart coming at me strong. I didn't make that up. And I suspect some of you in this room, perhaps many of you would have stories that are very similar to moments in time when Satan, man, he wanted to steal, kill, and destroy. My encouragement to you, my strong exhortation, my pastoral urging to you is to not diminish or or consider that to be like fairy tale information, but to realize what we're looking at and describing in our experience and in our doctrine is that there is a a force, a person, a created being and demons with him. His name is Satan, demons with him and they try to frustrate the people of God. They're trying to get you to sin. They've created systems and pressure that would appeal to your fleshly nature to try to trip you. They're doing that. That's going on. You can't see it, but it is happening. It is real. Satan and his demons are out to get you. So no wonder Paul would say, stand strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Because if it weren't for God, listen to me very carefully, they would get you. Everyone listening. I hope you heard what I said. If it weren't for God, they would get you. And if it weren't for God, they would still be getting you. That's why I love Jude 24 and 25. He will keep you from stumbling. So who gets all the glory and dominion and authority and power? Not you and I in our white knuckling meager efforts to fight Satan, but in but in God who has already defeated Satan. That's why this last area of demonology is so important. I don't want to just describe your experience. I don't want to just look at where it came from and what it's rooted in. I want you to understand that there is a victory in place. 
and it's Christ's victory. Can you notice with me just another text that will help us understand this doctrine? Colossians chapter 2. Here's Christ's victory so beautifully laid out for us. Colossians 2, look at verse 13 with me, would you? And you who were dead in your trespasses of the uncircumcision of your flesh, go back to Ephesians 2 to read more about what that looked like. We were under the power of the prince of the, of the air. We walked according to his course. Yeah, that's what we were. But then God did something. God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. That's what Satan uses to accuse you, by the way, your record of debt. All the things that you can't deal with and justify and forgive and atone for, it's books and books and volumes of sins. It's libraries. <laughs> of all the things that stand against you, God, through Jesus, took those out of the way. Man, my heart right now is just rejoicing. It's just full. That God would be this gracious to us. Ephesians 2. Am I reading in the wrong place, Bruce? Yeah, we're in in Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. This is where it says God made us alive together with him. He forgave us all of our trespasses. He canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Do you catch that? Where did God gain victory over your sin? At the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Pause there and notice. Same words used in Ephesians 6. When it says that we don't wrestle flesh and blood, we wrestle against rulers and authorities. But guess what happened to those rulers and authorities? According to this verse, Christ won the victory over them at the cross. He put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in Him. So God, in Christ, triumphed over rulers and authorities at the cross. So here's two important concepts you've got to know about demonology, about spiritual warfare, about Satan's realm. Victory was won at the cross... And vindication was given at the grave. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant exactly that. Amen? Satan was defeated, sins were forgiven. And when God, by the Holy Spirit's power, raised Jesus, he was saying the sacrifice is satisfactory, it has been completed, I accept it. And so there's vindication that Jesus is the ultimate victor, which is why he would say at the end of his 40 days upon the earth, after resurrection, all authority has been given to me. You only say that if you're in charge. So watch this, church, because this leads us in a dilemma that I want to explain as we close. The Scripture's clear that we are in a wrestling, a grappling match, a hand-to-hand combat with some evil forces that though we see visible sights of evil, our real enemy isn't the law, the official the structure, the city council, your neighbor, your friend. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is what's behind that, the invisible forces, Satan and his demons. So we're in this fight, and yet we have this truth that some kind of victory took place. So are you like me thinking, okay, I like that, but my experience says, man, I'm still in a fight for my life. Does anybody find that to be kind of a quandary? I do. For several weeks I've been thinking, man, I love preaching the victory of Christ on the cross. Amen? Rejoicing with fellow believers in the church about how the Lord has given us 
at the cross and the grave, victory and vindication. Like, this is awesome. Christ intercedes for us, and we rejoice in that. We sing about it. But the experience seems like Ephesians 6 more often than we want to admit that, man, this wrestling match, like, if that's the victory, like, what's going on, Todd? If he's won the victory, why is there still such a fight? You wondering that? You should be, by the way. You should get in the boat with me and row that. That's a good question. Like, man, like, like how, how is that? How do we balance that? How do we reconcile that? Listen very carefully. I think what the scriptures are teaching is this. That we are fighting. We are in an actual, real wrestling match. But we're wrestling. We're fighting from and within victory, not for victory. Does that make sense? Because the victory's been won. We're waiting for the full deliverance of that. Let me illustrate. I have four children. They wear my name. Three of them are girls. They won't wear my name forever. I realize that. But genetically, biologically, bloodline, they're a part of our family. Always will be. So let's say that when Julie and I die, we leave them everything we have, which that's what we'll do. We've already talked about it. It's in our will. Those four got to fight over the meager things we leave. That's, that's up to them, Okay. A few pennies here, a house on Southeast 3rd, a couple of junk cars. You can have it and fight over it, right? So watch this. That stuff is theirs. Do you know that? It's theirs. But they don't have it yet. See, that's the point of an heir. An heir is someone who's, who's already in. In fact, let me just say it to you in our vernacular. Uh, the goods are already his, <laughs> Like, my name's on the line. Like, this is what's coming to me. I don't mean to be to sound selfish here, but that's kind of what an heir is. Like, I'm just waiting until I get old enough, and then what I know is mine will actually be mine. That's just... And, and so my kids are just waiting till we kick the bucket, go to the ground, they can have it. But in one sense, you can say that our stuff is already theirs, They just haven't taken possession yet. I think that's the best way for me to explain to you the idea that Christ has won the victory. And we're to remember that every every time we meet, excuse me, we're to remember that in communion when we meet as a way to prompt us and motivate us to rise. We're just enduring evil until he comes again in which he will deliver, the Bible says this, deliver the kingdom once and for all to God the Father. It's the same idea we talked about at Easter a few years ago. There's been an inauguration of the kingdom already but it's not yet fully been consummated. And we're in this time period in which there's been an inauguration, but not a consummation. So that's why there's this fighting from victory, not for victory. The victory has been won. So why fight? Because fighting fuels endurance. And I would just say to you, what I've come to believe in the last few weeks, even studying this, is I think standing, as Ephesians 6 says, go back to our original text, standing strong in the Lord and the power of his might. I think the real fight for us is summed up in a word endurance. You ought to track that word to the New Testament. You'll find that's the call to the saints throughout the centuries. It's not to win a battle. It's to endure evil because the battle's been won. So as we kind of expose Satan and his regime this morning, as we kind of bring to you more information and doctrine about demonology, Don't think you've got to go out there and fight to win something. It has been won. 
But we have to endure his evil until Christ comes back. So we fight from victory. We endure and we stand. Which is why in Ephesians 6, what's the primary words? The primary words each mentioned four times are stand and pray. Do you know that? The armor of God's tucked in between there, yes. But standing and praying are the main things we're to do while we're dressed with the armor of God. That speaks to me of endurance, of of firmness, of not budging. Because Christ has already won. Now, I can't take any questions today for time. We just have one song we're going to sing at the end, but I do want to take five minutes. We'll be out before 10, don't worry. And I want to give you four ways to put this into practice. I'll put them all on one screen for you, okay? Things I think will help you. Get dressed, all right? Between verse 10, about standing strong, verse 11 and 12, about the schemes of the devil, and then verse 19 and 20, about how uh, we're going to pray that they'll speak boldly, there's this section about the armor of God. And by the way, it's God's armor. That's a genitive in the Greek language. In other words, the armor of God is from God. So you don't have it in and of yourself to fight Satan. You have to be dressed by God. So don the armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. You can read about what it is. I just want to encourage you pastorally this morning. to When you get up in the morning, please, dress your soul. I know you look in the mirror. You put on the clothes. We should do that, <laughs> right? But your body's going to rot away and decay until Christ comes and raises it again and glorifies it. Here's something far more important than your body, your soul. Are you dressing your soul daily? Because that's what Satan's after. Now, if you're saved, your soul's secure. But he, he'd love to bring sin into your life, to trip you, to cause grief and hurt to you and those around you, to cause you to be ineffective in your service to God. That's what he's after. So, in plain language, get dressed spiritually. Second tip, keep praying. I cannot overemphasize this which is just a way we would say, I'm going to repeat it, and you're going to be okay with it, okay? Keep praying. It's the second most used word in the spiritual warfare text. Pray, 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 pray. So you get dressed, and then while you're wearing God's armor, you're just praying in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Because, you know, you and I, we need God's help in fighting Satan. So pray. Third tip, be alert. So you've got the armor on, and you're praying without ceasing, right? All the time, you're just like, God, I want to be alert to Satan. And here's why you have to be alert, because Satan does not come to you with, like I said, caution, you know, yellow caution signs, red flashing lights. Satan comes to you, and there's three words you should remember. This is how he works every time. Disguise, Divide, destroy. Every time. It started in the Garden of Eden. Same philosophy when he tempted Jesus. And we see it in our own life. He'll disguise. He'll divide. 
and then he'll destroy. So you have to be alert. Peter said, be sober and vigilant because your adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, walks about trying to devour people. Paul called us to be sober-minded. So, so you put the armor on, you're praying, then just don't become like this, uh, uh, you know, walking kind of coma person. Like, okay, I'm, I'm dressed and I'm praying. Be alert. I say this a lot of times to our family. Watch the edges Pay attention to the corners. Look out for the cracks. Satan loves to set up a tiny base of operation in the smallest of places. Romans 13, 14 calls this not giving the flesh a single opportunity. It's interesting wording there, isn't it? He says, don't make any provision for the flesh. In other words, don't give the flesh one of the schemes of Satan even a small little place to operate. Because once he gets a small crack, once he gets a corner, once he gets an edge, what will he do? He'll take ground. And I've discovered this in watching people in my own life and in hours of counseling, formal and informal. The one crack, the one crevice, the one edge he loves to get in on is your pain. When someone hurts you, when someone mistreats you, when you've been done wrong, whether... They think they were wrong or not. Whether you're right or wrong, if you think there's been an injustice in your life, Satan, he loves to come in there and put in a small base of operation. Like, you know what? Yeah, you were mistreated. Yeah, that, that's terrible. I can't believe God would do that to you. I can't believe God's people would do that to you. I would never go back. I'd never speak to them. And a little bit of suddenly pride and self-righteous anger kind of settles in. You're, you're not watching the corners and the edges. And that just turns into resentment, which turns into bitterness. And from bitterness, all kinds of sin spring up. So again, some pastoral exhortation to you. Watch the edges and the corners and the crevices and the cracks, especially in times of pain. Satan loves to get in there in a small little way, and over time, he'll wreak havoc in your life. I need to wrap this up. Lastly, stay put. I mean, is there any, uh, is there any more common word we can use for the word Stand. And I like the way he says in this chapter, he says, when you've done all you can to stand, then do one thing. What's he say? Stand. He's not expecting in spiritual warfare necessarily a lot of movement or maneuvering. He just wants you not to budge. Stand in Christ. He's won the victory. So you, listen church, you can endure evil until he comes. You can withstand the cosmic forces and the rulers and the authorities and the spiritual forces. You can endure them, not because of you or me, but because Christ has won. So please, for God's sake and Christ's name, stay put. Don't budge. You stand even when all the forces of hell come against you. And the pressure and weight to quit and to turn back is great. You stand in Christ alone. Let's pray.